Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Photography. I'm the host, Lorena Turner. I am a lecturer in the communication department at California State Polytechnic University, and I'm also a project-based photographer. Recently, I spoke with photographer Amy Elkins about her new book, Black is the Day, Black is... Hello, and welcome to New Books in Photography. I'm the host, Lorena Turner. I am a lecturer in the communication department at California State Polytechnic University, and I'm also a project-based photographer. Recently, I spoke with photographer Amy Elkins about her new book, Black is the Day, Black is the Night, which was self-published at the end of 2016. Black is the Day, Black is the Night is a collection of letters and ephemera related to exchanges that Amy had with a number of male death row inmates over the five-year period. Not purely a letter-writing exercise, Black is the Day, Black is the Night, allowed Amy to create images based off of what the inmates wrote to her, and then send them back and get their response and critiques. Her book was shortlisted for the 2017 Mac First Book Prize, also the 2016 Paris Photo Aperture Foundation Book Awards, and was selected by Time Magazine as one of the best photo books of 2016. Usually I talk with people on this podcast using Skype, but that wasn't available to us this time. So Amy and I spoke by telephone, which makes the quality of this recording a little different, maybe a little more ragged than the previous ones. My apologies for that. But Amy is so good at discussing her work, her ideas, and her book, Black is the Day, Black is the Night. I'm sure you'll be drawn in despite this. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Photography. Today I'm talking with Amy Elkins about her 2016 book, Black is the day, black is the night. Welcome to New Books and Photography, Amy. Thank you. you. Start by telling us a little bit about your book. Sure. Black is the day, black is the night uh, was a project that started through some sort of casual letter writing. I didn't really see it necessarily as a book or a photo project or an exhibition. Um, 2009. I started writing with several inmates that were serving pretty harsh sentences around the country. Uh, five were serving death row sentences. Two were serving life that went in as juveniles. And I kind of just wanted to do a little bit of a writing experiment to see where our letters would take us in terms of looking into the dialogue about masculinity and its most extreme manifestations. 
But what happened was I was getting all these letters back that were just so genuine and sincere and open and nothing like I expected. And so I had to shift my thinking about how I wanted to approach, you know, being in touch with these men and what I wanted to get out of it, what I wanted them to get out of it. And so I started writing them sort of these uh, writing exercises where I would prompt them to think about their lives that they couldn't really access anymore, their lives outside, their family members that got left behind, things they experienced as youth, um, just things that they couldn't really ever see or feel again. And so through that dialogue, uh, we started going back and forth with these ideas and the writing just got so kind of saturated and amazing that I started wanting to create these places that they were describing. And that was sort of the beginning of the project was creating fictional landscapes out of things that they were describing in places they couldn't see ever again. So from that, the work sort of developed organically. It's shifted so many times over the years. And eventually, around 2014, I started pursuing making a book a bit more seriously about the work. I had written with the men at that point for several years, and I had created a lot of work out of the experience, and I had sent the work back to them, and there was a lot of back and forth, um, and I was excited to try and, like, make something physical out of it. And so uh, I had pursued a couple different publishers in order to try and make that happen um, and just hit a lot of roadblocks. And so I kind of put it on the back burner, kept making book dummies, um, playing with the ideas myself, and applying for grants that seemed relevant to try and help fund it so that I could do it myself. And so eventually I did get uh, the Peter S. Reed Foundation grant, which funded most of a small run that I did myself. So I self-published the book with that money and that book came to life um, in the fall of 2016. So it's only been out in the world for a pretty short amount of time. But that's a roundabout kind of nutshell of how the project started and how it kind of took a life of its own. It's been in traveling exhibitions and it's now a book that I'm very proud of that's out in the world. So is your kind of history with photography. When did you start and did you go to school for photography? How did you get interested in it? I think I've always been drawn to sort of, I don't know, being distracted by art or being, you know, escaping a little bit into art. As a kid, I kind of was naturally sort of drawn to that kind of stuff. And then We didn't have any kind of photo programs in any of the public schools I went to. So when I was in high school, I would leave half day and I would go to the college near where I lived and I would take photo classes there. Um, It didn't really, looking back, it's kind of all that funny stuff I guess everyone does in the beginning. (laughs) It doesn't really mean anything and it looks really Mm -hmm. awful. um, But from there, it kind of planted a seed. And uh, 
sort of a roundabout way because I went to I went to that college in the 90s when I was still in high school, and then in early 2000, I went on a cross country trip with a friend to go photograph America and <laughs> my ode to Robert Frank, and I uh, lived in the truck with my friend, and we traveled the country for 45 days shooting whatever um, that we could find. And we never saw any of that material because <laughs> a couple of days from getting back home, our truck got stripped and our cooler of film got stolen. And it was sort of this bizarre twist at the end of a really long, kind of amazing trip. And so um, I never really knew what came out of it. And instead of sulking about it, I decided just to move to New Orleans. I lived in New Orleans for three years where I met very soon after moving there, I met a photographer named Herman Leonard who has since passed away, but he was just under 80 when I met him. And he was a sort of legendary jazz photographer. So he kind of, not that I wanted to be a jazz photographer, a music photographer, anything like that, but he took me under his wing and he was just kind of an amazing energy to be around. And he really, really pushed me to leave New Orleans because it is it is pretty small and it is kind of limiting. Um, and he really pushed me to do what he did in his 20s was to go to New York and to just jump into the deep end. And so in 2004, I moved to New York. I got um, a pretty decent scholarship to go to School of Visual Arts. And I moved there in, yeah, 2004. Went to school for three years and graduated with my undergrad in photography from School of Visual Arts. Thanks to Herman. You, he really <laughs> yeah, Herman. gave you a life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he's he was such an amazing guy. And what was so great is that there was an event in New York you know, a couple years after I had moved. And like, mind you, I moved to New York and right after I moved there, Katrina hit New Orleans and destroyed it. And and Herman was displaced and everyone was displaced. Herman was living in Los Angeles um, with his daughter and everything was just kind of like destroyed and displaced and horrible. And so I didn't really know. I lost track of so many people. And um, I found out that there I think it was I forget the it was a it's a big photo event that they do annually and and Herman was one of the keynote speakers at it and so I went just to surprise him but I was kind of mindful of how old he was and I didn't know if he would remember me um oh and yeah, because he was at that point he was in his you know mid 80s and he is introduced in he is around so many people every day and he and he has so many people that you know like most kind of photo legends they it's like they have a lot of people that that are around them that want from them and they i feel like we remember them more than they might remember us sure. sometimes and sure. um and so i was a little bit nervous but uh when i went to the event his I waited for him to finish speaking, and then he turned, and I kind of was giving him some space because he had a lot of people around him. But his eyes lit up, and he totally ran over to me, and it was 
really fun. We took a bunch of photos together because they had a like a stage set up with like strobe lights and stuff. But anyhow, so yeah, Herman Herman pushed me from New Orleans to New York, and uh, and I'm glad he did. Where are you from? I grew up in Venice Beach in Santa Monica. I hear a slight southern accent. <laughs> I think Do you I just think have you got that in New Orleans? I'm <laughs> that would be pretty odd since I wasn't there that long and it was a while ago, but right. I've heard that before. I think I've have a accent that's mutated because I grew up in Southern California and then moved to New Orleans for three years and moved to New York for seven years and then moved to the east coast or the northwest for a couple years and so I think I just picked up on I have a I have a, uh, a mashup. I don't know. <laughs> so, in when you introduced the the book just a couple of minutes ago, you said you were really interested in the extreme manifestation of masculinity, kind of as it connects to men in prison. What does that mean exactly? Uh, well, all of my work leading to this project has all been many different uh attempts to sort of look into and understand masculinity more and so um i had worked my first project that looked at masculinity or rather sort of challenged the stereotypes of masculinity was a project called wallflower and what that project was sort of aiming to do was sort of expose the idea that there's so many different aspects of being a man that are sort of taboo to um, to let out in the world, to be vulnerable or sensitive or anything besides macho. And so I made this project that that kind of challenged these ideas of of masculinity. And um, but it was such a sort of quiet approach to it that's not really the right word but I'm kind of not finding the right word it was such a like subtle look into this that I wanted to look at the flip and so I started photographing my next project after wallflower was elegant violence and I wanted to look at um how I just I wanted to look at how masculinity sort of plays out in the athletic arena and and rugby is a sport that still especially after learning about it while working on the project it just blows my mind that people volunteer to play it it's a it's a sport that involves no pads or helmets and and it's it's like football but without rules and people just get destroyed on the field and the game is 90 minutes and um, so when I was shooting Elegant Violence, it was sort of looking at these Ivy League institutions on the East Coast and how there was this long tradition of sort of Ivy League, but not even Ivy League in the U.S., but abroad there's a whole thing about this sort of um, like money and elite status of men that play rugby. And to me, that was fascinating, this idea that you can clash both worlds where you're taking people that are 
studying to become kind of future world leaders and bankers and lawyers and all these things, and then they're volunteering to just destroy their bodies and break their teeth out and not break their noses. And um, and so that, to me, was sort of this idea of looking into play violence, you know, mm-hmm. where you can act out this violence, but then that's not really who you are off the field. And that's how it was when I would go to these games. These guys would just destroy each other, and at the end they would all go drinking together. And um, and so that was looking into this idea of play violence. But um, it's sort of a roundabout way about how I stumbled across uh, the idea of writing inmate. But when I did stumble across it, um, it just resonated. That idea that, you know, prisons are flooded with mostly men and violent crimes are committed by, you know, pretty much dominated by men. And then, you know, people that are serving death row sentences, it's definitely like majority of men. And so I wanted to look into that. I wanted to kind of wrap my head around, you know, what what it is that makes that makes men act out more violently than women or or why they would choose to you know make those decisions in their lives that land them in in places where you know they can never see something again or be near someone again and so i started writing out of that impulse it sort of was a spoke off of in a weird way it was kind of a spoke off the rugby project of just like looking into this idea of playing out violence and then you know, physical violence, you know, there's like the whole spectrum of how boys are raised, you know, what, like girls aren't really raised that way. Um, there's there's that whole spectrum of being raised to kind of play fight and then play fight manifests in different ways. And I just wanted to look into that. Um, and it just turned, it turned into such a different thing once I, once I started. So. How did you start your kind of correspondence with them was it was it uh, well first of all how did you choose the individuals so let let me start with that question who you wrote to uh well it's kind of i'll just like you know start by saying most of the projects that i've ever done sort of start it's like kind of a funny little seed that gets planted that turns into a bigger thing it's not generally like I was gunning to do this project about prisons and then it just, you know, it came about because of that. It was because I was researching something else and came across a website. And that's kind of how a lot of it's 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 kind of honestly how a lot of my projects start where I'm having a conversation. A little seed is planted. I kind of get obsessed about that idea and I go and research it further. So what happened with this project is that. Um, I was online searching for a family member that had been missing for a while, and it was um it was sort of this strange thing where you know like no one had known where he went, we knew what state he was in, we didn't really understand anything else, we didn't know why he left California, and what happened was we ended up finding him on a prison database we ended up you know eventually someone thought we should look in a prison database you know we should try and find him that way and lo and behold 
he was there and it was this mug shot and you know of course it's depressing to see you haven't seen someone in 10 15 years and then you see them and they're at their worst um mm-hmm. and so it just made me kind of think about this idea of the mugshot as a portrait because it's a really confrontational portrait. If you, mm-hmm. if like most of my portraiture, the reason I love portraiture is I love the psychology behind them. I love that idea of, you know, experiencing a moment with someone and you, and you, you don't really know going through their mind and and with a mugshot it's like they're apprehended they're in a very heightened moment and they're being photographed Mm -hmm. like how photographers we love photographing people and here's here are these people that they don't want to be photographed but they're a portrait and so I was fascinated by that and I started looking online trying to find sort of databases of mugshots and what I found were these pen pal websites that had tons of mugshots, but they were they were made to, you know, help inmates connect with people outside of prison in some way or another. Mm-hmm. And so the first one I found was kinda hokey and but it was fascinating and and I didn't I didn't really get much out of that site, but it was enough to like make me want to research more online to find other websites that would be doing similar things. And so I found this website where you had to basically like agree, like go through a waiver process, um, mm-hmm. and then you go in and and it's just like you know thousands of people, and there was little check boxes on the website, different search tools, mm-hmm. and you could literally click on a horoscope sign, or you could click on an age, or you, oh, could, you click could on... Oh, you could sort by these particular You could options. sort them down. Yeah, uh-huh. you could sort the men or women, because it was both. Mm-hmm. You could sort these uh, individuals by different things that you might be looking for or wanting to connect with in some way. Mm-hmm. But there was a check mark for death row and there was a check mark for life and when I saw that I just kind of stopped in my tracks because I thought that's such a haunting that's such a whole like crazy thing to wrap your head around it's such a crazy thing to like be like okay cool like what could honestly happen if I click these things and unless you're super involved in the justice system in the United States and you're super involved with, you know, that subject matter, I think most people are pretty naive to how massive the population is on death row in the United States. So I'm clicking it thinking, you know, what would possibly happen? But what happened was there was thousands of people, mostly men, looking to touch base with people outside of prison because they were all going to either die of old age there or they were going to get executed. And it was just something that never crossed my mind until that moment, clicking that button and then being kind of confronted with that. And so... Were were the face... Were there there mugshots visible to you? Yeah. Yeah, you click that button 
and there is a page of about, you know, they probably had 50 profiles on each page, and you could go for, you know, there was thousands of people, but it was all people just staring back at you, and it would say, right. you know, the little thing before you click in, it was just like, you know, as if it was um, like tiled or something, and each mugshot, they weren't all mugshots. A lot of them were mugshots, but some of them were um, those shots that you could take through the visitation window. Some mm-hmm. of them were shots from before they went in. Um, but it was like say their personal name. shots. Yeah, like some of them were shots that were twenty years old. Wow. And so you're seeing this kid, and then and it says their age, and their age is like forty, and you're looking at maybe a twenty-two-year-old boy, right. um, and and would say, you know, their name, the state they're in, um, how, I don't know if it said how long they had been in. There was different stuff you could click on, and then if you actually click their profile, because they were, they were profiles, then, then you would get their kind of bio that they write. So they write these bios in prison, and then they'd send it to, like, a family member or an organization that puts it online for them. And so it would say, you know, like a little spiel about who they are and what they want out of writing. And some of them Mm -hmm. are looking for lawyers and some of them are looking for uh, like spiritual advisors. Some of them are looking, you know, like there's a lot of different reasons why these people want to have correspondence. And so um, so that is how it started. But then the way that I picked, I mean, there was literally, you know, thousands of people to pour through and, and I was looking through the guidelines on the website and they say, you know, don't write more than one person in the same prison because it can create issues mm-hmm. <laughs> in the prison. Um, there's a lot of weird guidelines that you don't think about when you're just walking through your day-to-day life and how you interact with people. It's very mm-hmm. different. And so um, so a lot of the filtering happened naturally through me following these guidelines oh. um, because most of the guys on death row are in California and Texas. And so I could only pick one from each. Um, and then you know, I wanted to pick different states. And so that was sort of like the main filtering process was just making sure to get people from various parts of the country so that it would be, you know, the most, I don't know if honest is the right word, but I wanted it to be diverse. I didn't want it to just be all men in the South or all men of color or all, you know, like, it needed to be diverse for me to kind of explore it in a way that felt like authentic. Sure. And I mean, that that gives you the opportunity to hear, you know, lots of different perspectives, certainly of the individuals, but also their perspectives as informed by where they come from, you know, what part of the country that they're coming from and how they're created or interacted with in those locations as well, I'm sure. Yeah, any layers to yeah. actually just getting to the story of how the book was even made. How did you, in your initial letter or two, how did you approach talking with them? Did you have kind of a an intended question or like an intention-filled question? Or was it 
more oblique than that? Well, the thing is, and this is also me following the guidance, is that um, you don't know who actually is going to want to write you back. So the initial letter, well, first of all, I should just state that it's kind of a stressful thing to think about doing this, right? So you're like, mm-hmm. okay, what what do I want to open myself up to? You know, like, mm-hmm. wh- wh- what do I want to allow into my life? And so there's all these different things that you do to kind of like, I don't know, set yourself up for being just safe doing these kind of things. And you so protect I could probably state while everyone's listening, uh, you know, I, the first thing I did was set up a P.O. box so that no one knew where I lived. And so that's like one of the steps that is sort of, this bizarre thing to do, you know, you don't normally have to set up a P.O. box just to write someone and then have to go somewhere else to get your mail. So that was something I had to do as a precautionary, uh, you know, step along the way. And then um, the first letter I wrote, I introduced myself as um, an artist in New York. I wanted to be upfront about, you know, that and not just pretend I'm, you know, some person that wants to be their pen pal, like in a context of just being a pen pal, you know, I'm an artist and I was wanting to write them as part of my art. And so I wrote them that, not in a lot of detail, but just, you know, I'm an artist living in New York. I wanted to write with you to talk about your experiences in prison. Um, Just, I had to keep it really simple because I didn't want to I didn't want to I didn't want to come across like too bold right away and sort of freak people out or make people be on the defense immediately of like what who is this chick and like why is she kidding me and what does she want from me so I had I you know I was very I tried to be subtle but honest about who I was and and what I wanted and then I waited to see who would write me back and then go from there. And so um, I wrote I wrote five men that were all on death row. And then I went to Europe because I had a show in Vienna. And so I left the country and I kind of, it's not that I forgot that I wrote them, but I just didn't expect to hear back from anyone. And so I was gone for two or three weeks and came back. And I had, I think I had one letter, but it was from a guy in Texas. And it it was very short. It said, I don't know if you'll want to write me. I already have an execution date, Um, you know. The, I'm, I'm. He, he basically was like, I'm as willing to write you as, is, but you, but you, I don't want you to be terrified about this idea. Like, I'm gonna die in a couple months, and he had his date like listed in the, in the letter. Um, and so that was just like my wake up call of, of what I had decided to explore, you know, because that's not what I thought would be my first letter back, in any way. There's like thousands and thousands and thousands of people on death row. I wrote five, and the first letter I get back is from someone that's about to die. And so 
didn't know if I would want to write him. And so I, I wrote, I wrote him back and that was sort of, you know, like that was, that was the beginning of the project. That was the entry point of the project was my first pen pal was executed three months after I started my project. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it got real, like extremely really fast. quickly. Yeah. And, and I, you know, had to try and figure out how to process that and, and how to proceed and, you know, all of those, the whole project, the entire time up until the book was published has been sort of kind of emotional and psycho- psychological and creative and all the different things. It's, it's like been a big scramble of how to process and how to piece it together because it's just one of the most challenging projects I've ever worked on. There's not a clear answer. There's not a clear way to finish it. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's, it's been a crazy project to work on. The book is a really, a beautiful book and it kind of echoes what it is that you're saying, um, because there's not, and I could, I can understand in, in now talking with you how there, there's no kind of template for how do you explore these relationships and how do you talk about them as individuals with individual experiences and feelings and, you know, reactions to their circumstances and also kind of bring in other dimensions of what it is that you want to say about them and what your experience was as well. So you include a lot of different types of visual information in the book, which I can see that that must have been very challenging to to kind of, and why you would have multiple book dummies, you know, just to kind of distill that down to, you know, what you have, what makes sense to you, and then how do you order that? That's that's a whole other conversation. Um, but yeah. but it's, it's clear by looking at the book that there was an enormous amount of decision-making that because there's I, I've, I've not seen a book like that. Well, I had a good designer. <laughs> oh, that's that definitely... Yes, um, because I... I definitely, you know, when I couldn't find a publisher in the first place, I was already feeling a little bit defeated. But then when I couldn't, because, um, you know, like the publisher, I feel like they help elevate it. They bring their designers in. I just feel like there's a lot of support that gets involved in the bookmaking process. And so trying to do it myself, I didn't exactly, it's not like a lot of my friends are bookmakers. I have so many friends. That's all they do. Like as an art practice, they just make books. That's how their minds work. Mm-hmm. And mine doesn't work that way. And so when I was working on the book, I had no idea how to like deal with text or like I knew how to sequence because it's very similar to editing your work, you know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I didn't know how to deal with page, like the space of the page and mm-hmm. you know the the text and and how to deal with like this book needs tons of captions this work is caption heavy and it needs to be there but I don't know I didn't know where it needed to be and so you know I just I had a good designer that took my design that I'd already been working on for years and then just totally elevated it and helped me deal with those things that I didn't know how to wrap my head around that's that's really great. It really paid off. 
Thank you. <laughs> what what <laughs> kind of a tooth? Yeah. <laughs> what kind of roadblocks did you uh, hit with publishers? Just uh, a lot of no's. Just no. Just <laughs> so no this feedback. Just work. About, no. Yeah, no, I didn't really, I, it, they were literally roadblocks. Like I couldn't get through to people. And then, you know, the people that I could get through to, it just wasn't a good fit, you know, mm-hmm. for one reason or another. So like during this whole process of me working on my book and working on this project, I got the Aperture Portfolio Prize and I had my show in New York and, and, the work has traveled. It's gone to different venues, and and it's just interesting. You know, I think it's interesting because it's either publishers that have already have worked too similar, or mm. the book is too complicated. There's a lot of people that were like, "This is beautiful work, but it's just like doesn't fit here." Um, you know, so it's it's I don't I don't really know. And I'm not a super aggressive photographer. And so I I don't, you know what I mean? Like there's some people that just tear at things and if they hit a wall, they just keep going. And I just kind of was like, you know, I'm working on a lot of other stuff right now. So maybe this just isn't meant to be a book and it's okay. I'm going to just keep my book dummies, I'll work on it on my own when I have time and I'm going to move on Um, Mm -hmm. because the project by itself was so exhausting that it was okay with me to kind of set it down. And I think that's why the project took so long in the first place is there was a lot of times throughout 2009 and 2016 where I had to put the work down because mm-hmm. it just was, it was too much, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because since I self-published, I got shortlisted for the Perry Photo Aperture First Book Prize. I got shortlisted for the Mac First Book Award. So it's getting a lot of attention. But the work that I did on my own before the designer, I don't know if it's as effective you know, I think mm-hmm. it really like I really needed that designer to come and help and 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 help me package that work in a way that was accessible. I'm completely okay with the way that it went because it's it's been kind of amazing for me to feel like, you know, I did it exactly the way I wanted to. Yeah. I didn't have to compromise at all yeah, like any aspect important. of it, you know. It's how extremely it, important to me. How does it feel to have it out in the world now? It feels really good. Like it's a, I feel like it's so much different than being able to send someone to your website or, you know, mm-hmm. have someone see a show of your work because it's so personal. And this project in particular being packaged as a book, um, I just feel like it's a really personal way for people to navigate the work. And Mm -hmm. I know, you know, I worked on the project for so long that there's a lot of it that I've probably become a little numb to in terms of how I look at the subject matter. And um, when I've shown the work on walls and I've had total strangers come up to me and say that 
they have no idea how I how, how I could do it. And I've had, you know, people in shows uh, literally emotionally reacting and coming up to me. And I feel like that's just a tiny slice. The exhibitions were always this tiny slice because there's no way I could exhibit this work. And it would it would take up so much space to try and exhibit the work the way that the book pulls off in terms of the volume of images, the different types of images, the storytelling aspects. Um, and so I just feel like it's 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 complete. You know, the shows have never been a full complete thing, and the reactions I've been getting are reflecting that. What are you working on now? Uh, I returned because before this project, all my work is pretty straightforward, traditional, uh, fine art portrait photography. So over the years, I have created these bodies of work that are kind of traditional bus shot, uh, daylight studio style portraiture. And so this project was like a giant leap and sort of a, a big tangent that, you know, I I love. I'm glad I did it, but I've mm-hmm. also been really wanting to return to portraiture and in that more traditional sense. And so I've been shooting portrait work in, right now, it's all in the South. I've been shooting in portrait work that sort of looks at um the shifting ideas surrounding masculinity especially in the american south because i feel like the south has so many different stereotypes and um and now under our new administration maybe even more amplified but yeah so i've been traveling to uh mostly georgia to shoot new portrait work did you have you listened to s town not yet. I uh, got tipped off to it the other day. I've listened to both uh, seasons of Serial. Serial, and I listen to Criminal, and there's all these different podcasts that I'm obsessed with. Um, and somehow I missed out on this, and my friend just told me, oh, you have to listen to it. So I just downloaded it. I started to listen to it, and it so far is just kind of cracking me up because the guy is so animated. But um, I haven't gotten into it. I've only been 10 minutes in. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I literally well, haven't. Even, very I started to listen to it, and I thought, this needs more time set aside. I need to yeah. return to this. So, Well, yeah. the only reason I say that is that I, I feel that there's a connection to the representation of masculinity that uh, you kind of feel through the, the podcast and through the characters as they're, you know, the characters in quotes, as they're portrayed as, you know, in, in the, the storyline, you'll probably find some resonance there. Maybe that's more of a question. Probably you'll find some resonance. <laughs> I maybe. probably will. I mean, I love, I think, um, I mean, it's a spoke off a of serial, is it not? Yeah, it's the same producer, but it doesn't, it's not, it comes across like it, it'll start like a, um, it'll seem like it's a mystery, like that, that they're heading down that same path and it will just take lots of turns that, and you really, I, I'm not going to say anything else. Okay. Yeah. And you should go on the journey. Serial is so great because 
you know, especially season one, because of this idea, there's questionable doubt about this kid's innocence or guilt, you know? Right. And yeah. and so it does tie immediately in because pretty much there was only two people that I wrote with that that said straight up, like, I did this. I deserve to be here. I'm an awful person. And then the rest yeah. of them said, I didn't do this. Like, it's not me. Like, two different people that I wrote with that were that were executed were the entire time they were continuously speaking of their innocence. And so those kind of stories are fascinating to me because I personally wrote with people that may have very well been innocent. I have no idea, you know. Mm-hmm. And so those kind of stories where there's a lot of twists and turns, I mean, that's that's how most of these guys that I wrote with a lot of their cases were mm-hmm. sort of, you know, there's, I don't know, like sometimes there's literally no witnesses. It's just two people pointing fingers. And yeah. so it it is a lot of small town sort of gossip and, and weird politics. And it's, I mean, it's, it's sad, but it's true. So um, where can people find your book? I know you just, you're, you're, you're running low on copies, but where could someone listening find it? Uh, well, I'm self-published, so it's just through my website. It's amyelkins.com. And there's a little tab on there, Black as the Day, Black as the Night book. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I know it's been a long time in the making. (laughs) That was photographer Amy Elkins discussing her book, Black as the Day, Black as the Night. You can purchase it through her website, amyelkins.com. New Books and Photography podcasts are hosted remotely by me, Lorena Turner, and painstakingly edited by me as well. If you have a new photography-related book coming out and would like to talk with me about it for about an hour, send me a message through the New Books and Photography Facebook page. This goes for monographs, theoretical texts, as well as books on the history of photography. On the next episode of New Books and Photography, I will talk with photographer David Carroll about his book, No Plan B, published by Peanut Press. No Plan B is kind of a career-long retrospective of his work and was published in conjunction with his show at the Leica Galleries in both New York and Miami.